And this week's episode of Startups for the Rest of Us, I talk with Jane Portman of UserList about their fight to gain traction in a crowded space. This is Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 471. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us. It's the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing startups. Whether you've built your fifth startup or you're thinking about your first. I'm Rob, and today with Jane Portman, we're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the mistakes we've made. Welcome to this week's episode. I'm your host, Rob Walling. Each week on this show, we cover topics relating to building and growing ambitious startups that we grow because we want to improve our lives, want to improve the lives of those around us, but we're not willing to sacrifice ourselves, our lives, our relationships, our health to grow these companies. We believe in relentless execution with a long-term mindset, and we think in terms of years, not months. As such, we don't burn ourselves out by working crazy hours, sacrificing our health or our relationships. Over the past 470 episodes, we've espoused things like freedom, purpose, and relationships. Freedom is the freedom to work on what you want, when you want, without a boss breathing down your neck. The freedom to go to your kid's baseball game on a Thursday afternoon without asking anyone's permission. Purpose is the ability to work on something that fascinates you and drives you every day to make it better. The purpose of building something that tens of thousands of people get value out of and that makes you feel great. And relationships. Deep and meaningful relationships with your family, your significant other, your kids, your friends. That's what Startups for the Rest of Us is all about. That's the lens through which we view startups. And today, I've invited Jane Portman on the show. I've known Jane for several years. She spoke at MicroConf Europe back in 2014. And we're going to talk about the app userlist.com that she co-founded with her uh, co-founder, Benedict Dyke. And they started working on UserList about two years ago. They did a bunch of customer interviews. And then almost a year later, they sold pre-orders, which that was about one year ago. And then really, it was a little bit less than a year ago, they started onboarding people and turned on billing towards the end of 2018. UserList, which used to be userlist.io, but they just recently got the .com, so now it's userlist.com, is customer lifecycle email perfect for your SaaS business. So it's event-based email, behavior tracking, lifecycle automation, segmentation, they have broadcasts, and that kind of stuff. And user list, you, know, you can imagine competitors to user list might be something like uh, an intercom, customer.io, and maybe even a tool like Vero. I'm not, to be honest, I, I'm so much less uh, clear on the whole email marketing space now that I'm not in it day to day. But at one point, Vero was into this stuff as well. And so... Both Benedict and Jane have been to many microconfs, and I've had dinner with them multiple times. And they are just fixtures of of the community and and good people who are working hard on you know essentially a bootstrap SaaS app. And so it's always fun to have conversations with folks who are who are doing it, you know. And and Benedict's a developer, and Jane is a really solid UX UI designer, and they make a good team, as you can tell by the the design and and from what I've heard the reviews of user lists. So in today's episode, we talk about the struggles of growing slowly and trying to find traction in a crowded space because there is a lot of competition. And we even walk through some lessons learned that Jane learned from her first SaaS app that she founded. And that one came as a surprise to me. I remembered the app, but I, you know, I just hadn't realized what what had happened to it. And, and kind of in the middle of the interview, she said, hey, I have a, a bunch of interesting takeaways from that. Uh, and we run through those towards the end. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jane Portman. Jane Portman, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you, Rob. I'm super, super thrilled uh, to share our story here. 
Yeah, yeah. It's good to have you on. You and I have known each other for for many years, actually. You spoke at MicroConf Europe back in 2014, I believe, and we've we've met at many a MicroConf. Absolutely. Thanks for putting that amazing community together. Yeah, for sure. Congratulations on userlist.com. You know, I, I still in the back of my mind, I think of you as userlist.io because you just have been for two years. But uh, I think just recently you guys landed, you dropped a, a couple thousand bucks on the .com. Quite a few. Yeah. <laughs> and we're absolutely excited about this. And we had doubts until the very last moment. But when we did buy it and when we got out to the community with, with the news, then it was an instant hit. We were like, yes, this is so great. <laughs> That's what I was going to ask was like as bootstrappers, you know, it, it's I think Benedict said you spent two or three thousand dollars on the domain name. He mentioned it on his podcast. And obviously that's an investment. You know, you said you had doubts right up until the end. Were you just questioning whether or not it'd be worth it and whether or not you should do it? Uh, we actually spent 4000 so and it's definitely a lot for a bootstrapper budget. We have been on the negotiation curve for like a year and a half, ever since, basically ever since our business started. And it felt the right moment that it was uh, valuable enough for us. And we understood that Userlist really has good traction now. And it was also good enough point for them not to understand that we are super, <laughs> super uh, successful because otherwise it will be like, I would probably go back up. We started uh, negotiating at like 20K and then uh, met at 4K. So yeah, we've been having doubts, but we have never looked back ever since. That's been such an emotional uplift for the whole company. Yeah, that's good. That's nice to have those hard decisions that once you make them, you know you're either going to feel terrible and be dragging them along and second guess them, or you're going to feel amazing and move on and know that it was the right call. And it's so hard to know until you send that wire, you know, or until you do the 301 redirect and now you're, you know, your domain is, is, is all up. So I'm super stoked to hear that it was the right call for you guys. Thank you. So you've been working on user list with your co-founder Benedict and uh, other co-founder Claire for two years now. And, you know, as, as you and I talked a bit offline, it's been a long journey to get to the point where you are today, right? That you started doing customer interviews about two years ago, and then it was another year later, you did some pre-sales, and then it was just about a year ago that you started onboarding people. And I know that, you know, there, there's a lot of talk in the microconf community about user lists. And there were several, I think, I believe there were even some mentions from, from the stage at microconf Europe of folks who are using user lists. But I've heard from, from you and Benedict that it's been slow growth. It's been uh, perhaps a little discouraging that it's taking this, this long. Can you talk me through like how that's felt? Absolutely. Well, there is a lot of uh, there are a lot of facets to that. <laughs> First hand is our naivete uh, in the beginning. Our initial plan was like to get to market and to 5k MRR in like six months. And the primary reason for that was that we did a software product together with Benedict before, and we got it out like in a few weeks because it was smaller. So this time we figured we have a more complex product, but Let's go full throttle on this. And it took way longer than that. We've done a lot of administrative stuff in the first year. And we didn't even do much product development because of that. Because email industry is so sensitive. And we wanted to get properly set up with a lot of things like incorporation, 
I don't know, all kinds of legal documents, agreements, everything like that we had in place before even onboarding a first customer. And that feels great because we don't have to deal with that now. But whilst we were done building the actual MVP, the second part of the hurdle happened, <laughs> not happened, it, it's an intentional model that we decided to be a critical business tool for people as opposed to, you know, vitamin type of product. And that implies lower churn and better retention, much better retention. But that also implies problematic onboarding. So it's much harder to help people onboard into a critical business tool as opposed to some productivity stuff. Uh, therefore, our users, our customers, they do strongly depend not only on the state of our product and the complexity, but also because our product is super easy inside, uh, the integration might seem intimidating, but it's not really. And inside is super simple. Uh, but what mostly depends on is the stage in their business. So we have plenty of early stage founders who are planning their launch in a few months, and it's never the perfect day to tackle customer messaging. <laughs> so that's what we have to deal with. And I think we still yet to solve that inflection point moment and how to stimulate that in a customer's mind. We've been trying our best to inspire them with uh, learning materials, with uh, podcast shows and everything else, but it's still very much learning in progress. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned that it's hard to kind of get people to switch or, or, or to come on board because I, it is such an aspirin. You talked about the vitamin aspirin dichotomy a little bit there. And that's, that's what I found too. When I've had apps that were vitamins, it was easier to get people to try them out, but the churn was higher. And frankly, it can kind of cut both ways. It's kind of nice when people will just try it on a whim. It sucks when they cancel, but it, it is nice to be able to get casual users. Building the, the aspirin type product is exactly what you're talking about, where it is a lot harder to get folks to, to sign up and commit and move over. And there's switching costs, even if there isn't true switching costs, there's switching costs in their head and there's setup cost. And there's, there's all of that almost mental baggage that I think people have, you know, resistance to moving over. How have you been attacking that? Well, like I said, we've been trying to inspire folks and we do our best to follow up with the potential leads in, in the most, uh, polite but persistent way. <laughs> but yeah, we don't have any secret sauce yet. It, it really helps that uh, our brand has grown over the last probably year, especially. We have gotten some nice publicity. And I think that nice public image also makes us more attractive of a purchase. And that contributes to that excitement that founders generally need to get started with this. And then it's just a matter of technically helping them on board when they need technical assistance. But that's not a huge burden at all. Sure. Yeah. And it's the it's an issue that any probably any email tool that's worth its weight is is facing is that most people who are going to use your tool are already using something else in place of it. They're either using a tool like a MailChimp or a Drip or a customer.io, or they have built it themselves in-house. You know, they already have Rails code with a liquid template that they pull stuff out of the database, and then they send these lifecycle emails. Um, I've already, I introed it at the top of the show, but just to remind folks, it's customer lifecycle email designed for SaaS businesses. So it's behavior-based, event-based, lifecycle automation, segmentation, and that, that kind of stuff. And, and the switching cost for that is there's a challenge there because it's hard. Like if I was running a SaaS app, I don't want all my marketing emails in MailChimp 
and my lifecycle emails in user list. I want them all together so that when someone unsubscribes, it unsubscribes across everything. And so that I have the data and the tags and all the stuff across everything. And so the decision to switch over to user list is it's not a simple, easy, I make the decision today, I move tomorrow decision. It's one that, you know, really kind of covers a lot of aspects of of my business all the way from marketing into kind of the sales process into the the onboarding the customer retention process you know it really does touch a lot of of key points in a business you're just hitting like a nail on its head we have very very heated discussions in house uh, well it's they're not heated because we initially agreed to keep this uh, only post sign up customer communications and there is a bunch of like trade-offs and, and perks uh, related to that. So the, the perks are that it allows us to make the product super simple inside, like literally very, very intuitive, as opposed to more complex enterprise tools that do both. On the other hand, there have been increasing uh, support requests, and I've known, uh, I, I know there are opinions out there. And yours included that we should probably allow for, you know, classic email marketing automation inside user list as well. So it's a debate and we'll see if this direction is worth pursuing down the road. But it's it's not an easy decision for sure. <laughs> no, and I went through the same thing. So I, I wouldn't say that I think you guys should do marketing. I, I just know that when we started Drip, it was overwhelming that by the time we were just doing the customer interactions, people kept asking us for the marketing. And it was for the reason I said they, they wanted it all to be in one place. So that is a, a decision that for you guys to make yourselves. I mean, if you look at Intercom and Customer.io, they're not designed for marketing emails, right? It's really customer communication. So it's obvious that you can build a business without doing those things. And I think, I don't know if Vero is still that way, but getvero.com was also just used to be customer um, messaging. So I think there's a path to do it and do it successfully. It's just a matter of how you attack it and which customers you go after, I think. And making these tools uh, speak to each other, it's not just a matter of technical setup. There is like no convention in the whole SaaS industry to date Please correct me if I'm wrong. Like, what is the best practice if somebody becomes your customer? Do you keep sending them newsletters or not? Like, what kind of communications they receive? Is there a single unsubscribe button or not? And every founder makes those decisions for themselves. So it's, it's, it's a technical setup and it's plenty of, like, logical decisions they have to take. Yeah, that's right. And you find yourself all in the mix. And every founder, as you said, makes the decision differently, but they all think that their decision is right. And that's where, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's where it gets complicated, right? So that's interesting. So over the last couple years, as you, you've been grinding it out, getting user list on, get, getting it built, getting pre-sales, getting folks to use it, you do have paying customers at this point and, and MRR. I'm curious... Has there been, in your mind, has there been a lot of uncertainty or is there uncertainty now in terms of, is this going to, like, are we going to be able to pull this off? Is this going to work? You know, we're, we're two years in and, you know, I w wish we were growing faster. I wish we were bigger. I wish we, you know, whatever that is. Does it ever feel like I, I I'm just not sure that, that this is going to work at the scale that we want it to? It sure sometimes feels like a marketing drudge. <laughs> <laughs> like for any founder, but from day one, we have never had doubts that this is a, a product that's needed for people because we've done some inventive products before, but we were absolutely positive that there is need 
And it was just a matter of making it happen step by step, slowly, very slowly, very, very slowly towards the right direction. And we've actually been getting more optimistic with time. And the last few months have been super cool. Like we know there is a lot of work ahead, but it's it's been so nice to see how the attraction picks up and there's word of mouth in, in the community, et cetera, et cetera. So we have actually made decisions. We've been part-time on this, myself and Benedict. We have made the decision to take a scary plunge and actually go full-time on that uh, in the beginning of 2020, starting January. Wow, that's just a couple months out. Good for you guys. Yeah, there is a lot of uh, work, like wrap-up we have to do in terms of client work. But having client work, it kind of pulls your attention away, but on the same side, it, it lets you do that organic, slow thing in a more secure manner. So you don't have to worry about bread and butter in the table because that desperate type of marketing is no good for any brand. Yeah, it's hard. It's it's hard to be stressed about money and to watch runway shrinking away. And yet it's also hard to have split focus. I've I've done both of them and neither is neither is that fun. And this is that that's the conundrum of being a founder, right? It's making hard decisions with incomplete information where none of the decisions is, you know, 100% clear. So I uh, feel your pain on that. And, you know, congrats on, on deciding to go full time. I do think that will be probably game changing for you guys in terms of, yeah, the focus. Thank you so much. We're absolutely looking forward to this. <laughs> I bet. I bet. So I wanted to ask you about, you know, I asked you before the the interview if we were cool to talk about your third co-founder, Claire Swellentrop. So Claire, folks may have seen her on the MicroConf stage a couple years ago, and you and Claire and Benedict actually started UserList together a couple years ago, but I know that she's a lot, you know, a lot less involved than she was early on. Do you want to talk us through maybe what the situation is and how that went down? Yeah, absolutely. So we started this together, the three of us, and it was me who pulled pulled the folks together uh, because my previous SaaS, I was a solo founder, so I had to pay Benedict cash to build stuff. And there was no way I could do this with such a complex project. So I invited Benedict on board and I was super lucky that he said yes. And there was one more piece of the puzzle missing was the marketing person. And Claire was like number one on my Rolodex of nice people and also amazing marketers. So I reached out to her. And at that point of time, she was particularly looking for something of her own to start after quitting Calendly. Well, there was, of course, a bit of time between that, but she was previously director of marketing at Calendly. See how how large of talent we're talking about. I was absolutely thrilled when she said yes. And we had a lot of discussions in the beginning. And I'm super happy that we um, formalized our relationship in the most transparent way, splitting the shares in the correct manner, doing the vesting schedule, and then doing the proper contract, even though in the beginning that contract was sort of informal, but it was still signed. And then we incorporated. So everything was really, really well organized. And it's not just about being legally protected, but also about having a clear system in your mind, what's going to happen when something changes. Because the assumption that everyone was going to be like friends forever, it's totally very naive and childish because things change for everyone. And that is exactly what happened after, after a year that we've been working together. 
So the traction has been slow. We just started onboarding our first pre-order customer. So there was no sign of MRR whatsoever. And uh, Claire had to uh, decide what's going to be number one priority. And she had to take things off her plate to make it happen. So she had two large projects at that time was Userlist and Forget the Funnel, which you've probably heard online, which is in like a huge training training website and platform for marketers. And she made a choice, a conscious choice towards working with marketers because these are her like peers, target audience, and that was just overall more fulfilling. Therefore, we rearranged our agreement. We slowed down her vesting in half and she became our advisor instead of doing work hands-on. And in that type of mode, we spent another year until until just recently, when all of the above happened that we decided to go full in. Now, it didn't feel quite fair that we'd go full in, start working our backs off, and then Claire would be just advising. So we decided maybe we could uh, put together a more more fair agreement, and we reconsidered it again. So we right now, we have not documented it yet, but she will formally stop vesting uh, in the end of the year and she will just retain the number of shares she has while myself and Benedict will go full spin. And it sounds pretty stressful, but we really didn't get into any human arguments about it. It was more like a constructive discussion about figuring out ways how it can work for all of us and uh, the work that's fairly rewarded. So being going into business with adequate people really, really pays off. <laughs> After all, she is a good fit. <laughs> that's what I was going to say was it, it sounded, you know, from what I've heard from you and, and, and Benedict just in passing and talking about stuff, it, it sounds like it's been a surprisingly easy process for something that could have been really hard, you know, or could have been. I mean, it often turns into a big emotional fight with co-founders, if there's someone that that does need to that has a perfectly good reason to kind of walk away and do, you know, do something else that that they've decided to go do, that can it can hurt people's feelings and it can have all types of ramifications. But it, it really sounds like y'all were just kind of three reasonable people trying to figure out what was best. I mean, is that is that a good summary of it? Yeah, very much so. Interesting fact: we never got uh, got to using it, but in our original agreement, we also had a field for a mediator. So that was a person uh, that we all knew and trusted who would kind of mediate our arguments should we like arrive at a dead deadlock somewhere. <laughs> so we never really resorted to that measure, but that was another like cautionary thing that we took. Yeah, it's like it's a lot like marriage. Uh, you need to find adequate people. Uh, you need to really resonate with each other and you need to document everything. And yeah, that's how it works. <laughs> Yeah, that's good. Well, I'm uh, I'm glad because I like I like Claire and I know that you guys are are friends. So it's it's nice to be able to kind of go away with you know everyone feeling kind of good about the resolution. I think we're still very much a team. So she remains on the co-founder list. She for sure we're gonna have uh, monthly marketing sessions together. So she's still participating largely in the strategic side of the business. So it, it and it feels great. She's a wonderful human being. So Jane, you've worked, uh, you know, you've worked on many SaaS apps. You've built a couple yourself, as you said, you know, you had hired Benedict Pryor as, as a contractor and now working as a co-founder. So you have, you have a, a bit of experience under your belt here. What has been the most surprising thing to you in building UserList? 
building user list. I was I was thinking you're gonna ask uh, about the takeaways from the first app because I had plenty. <laughs> oh, I, well, let's go back on that after you answer this. I'd love to hear it. I think the I I don't know probably the slowness of it was the biggest surprise. Yeah, you thought it would gain traction quicker. Yes. Because the product idea, it's quite unbeatable. It's really, really a useful tool. So you would think that just getting the word out in the community would get, you know, fellow founders like signing up like that. <laughs> but no, <laughs> no. Yeah. And is that, is that an issue with switching costs or do you think it's a differentiation thing, you know, the, of, of not having the same features? And I don't know, if I were to compare you to your competitors, I don't know who has the most features or, or whatever, but I'm curious what your take is on that. We're all wise enough to know, like our team and you, <laughs> that features are not exactly the, the the key thing in purchasing decisions. So <laughs> I think feature parity is not an issue because lack of some features is clearly benefit in our case. So it makes the product much, much more transparent and um, straightforward to use. So it's 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 a little bit. I don't want to be comparing it to Apple, but because it's run of the mill. But we try to make some opinionated product decisions inside, so that it's simpler, easier to use, and more efficient. So in that regard, that's totally not a problem. As for as for the switching costs, yes, I think that's that's the primary reason, as as we talked above. And I, I'm hoping there is like a secret sauce inside, but overall. That and explaining what it does altogether, like, really makes a puzzle. And I'm glad that we have been kind of putting it together gradually, but it's, it's clearly you know, not there yet. <laughs> and so, yeah, to, to wrap us up today, you you know, you hinted at takeaways from your prior SaaS. So for folks who don't know, it was called Tiny Reminder, and it was it was a form builder with notifications. Is that is that a correctly sum it up? That's right. And it was a vitamin, very, very much vitamin type of product. Cool. And what, what were your handful of takeaways from building and I presume shutting that down? Oh, quite a few. Actually, I sold it to Nusi, so it still exists and functions, and they're planning to grow it as a satellite, a promotional tool for, for Nusi. I had a bunch of takeaways. I'm so glad I had this like kind of lab, uh, lab SaaS, <laughs> lab rat <laughs> sort of project that I made all possible mistakes. I, I didn't market to a clear audience was really so useful that anyone could use it and don't do that. Just focus on a niche instead. It was super vitamin and that's why we set out to do an aspirin product this time. Also, I did a freemium and that was quite a bad battle and freemium is not a great way for bootstrap founders to start their business. Not just because of the lack of revenue, but also the lack of uh, MRR as a validation because you never know whether those people are just like tire kickers or real users. Do they really need it? And one more, a couple more discoveries. I had a lot of experience with info products before, and I've been observing how sales work, that sales are hard to get, and how, you know, downloads work and how email signups numbers work and that not everything is cool. But I was not prepared that for SaaS business is so much harder. <laughs> 
just selling a book and an impulse purchase is way easier than selling a tool because that's clearly not something you can just buy. You need to use it and get value out of it. I've had that conversation with so many info marketers who, <laughs> who are making 50K a month or 100K a month and they'll say, hey, I'm going to get into SaaS. And I'm like, you have no, co- yeah, I know you can write copy. I know you can get people to input, like you said, impulse buy a book. But if they don't read the book, they don't cancel on you because they've already paid you. Like it's, it's a completely different world. And you're right. It's not twice as hard. It's like 10 times as hard to, to make it work with SaaS. We had a spectacular product hunt launch for Tiny Reminder and the number of, and it was uh, free trials, I think, was the call to action, the website. We've got like 10 or something. I, I, I don't exactly remember the number, but it was super miserable. Like for, for typical marketing freebie, it would have been, like you said, 10 times that. And another lesson was that I had an audience of my own related to design and they, I'm sure there are plenty of founders in that audience. And I've learned to understand that uh, personal audiences don't translate into SaaS sales, period. (laughs) So we've had a few users coming from my side, but this is clearly not a primary channel. So it's not something you can leverage very well. You really need to count on product market fit first and some scalable, reliable marketing channels instead of trying to milk your list, which I've never done in a bad way. But I tried with the first product and it just clearly didn't work. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a lesson I learned a long time ago as well, is that you can sell a little bit to your list, but really they're interested in hearing from you and hearing about your process and they'll buy books from you all day because that's hearing about you and your process. But, you know, books or whatever, video courses and conference tickets. I mean, these are things that, that you can sell to a personal audience, but SaaS apps, it's like, yeah, you can get that first you'll get a first handful of customers and then that's it. Now the real work begins, you know? And that's why I've heard folks say, hey, you should build an audience before you build a product. That's the way to do it. And I've heard that said about info products and I've heard it said about SaaS. And I think it's the wrong advice with SaaS. It's never bad to have an audience, but I do not think it's worth the years and all the effort of building an audience because building an audience is very, very hard in order to launch a SaaS app. And I think I have more, many more examples of people who have not launched, an, you know, built an audience and launched a, a successful SaaS app than I have of people, you know, who have done it versus, yeah, if we are going to talk on the knowledge product side where you're going to write books and courses and that kind of stuff, I would say people need to know, like, and trust you. Therefore, they need to have a relationship with you. Then therefore you, I, I would recommend an error on the side of, you know, actually building an audience before, before doing that. And you need to find scalable ways of reaching out to new people anyways. Like even if you have a nice waiting list, like we had probably close to, I don't exactly remember, something between five and 500 and 1,000 people. And I have an impression that they never really fully converted, even though we are doing our best and talking to them very, very often, very diligently with exciting updates. It's still not like it's a scalable way to grow our customer base, for sure. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, when when we launched Drip, I had a a launch list, not my robwalling.com list, but an actual drip interest list. It was about 3,400 people. And the first 500 on the list were from me talking about it on the podcast. And I think I emailed my email list, you know, and just talking about it on other podcasts. And then there were segments that were like from other shows. And then there were some from like, I ran Facebook ads to a landing page and got them. And I could kind of watch how they converted 
And it was definitely my that personal brand that converted almost the worst. There was some cold traffic that converted worse than that, but people just, <laughs> you know, they just they were more interested in the story and that's that's okay. But you have to know that going in that, you know, an audience is is not a not a golden ticket to launching a successful SaaS app. Moreover, it can be deceptive. And we've heard those stories like Shy and Brennan building right message. They almost had that kind of hangover from Brennan's authority in the automation space when they were building a different kind of product. And also, I've just uh, had uh, Derek on, on, on my show and we talked about Level and how he validated it. And that was basically off his uh, authority based on Drip and everything that got him into a little bit of deceptive situation too. Yep. And that, as you said, it can be can be deceiving. So, Jane, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show today to talk about UserList and your experience with it. If folks want to keep up with you on Twitter, you are at UI Breakfast, and you have the UI Breakfast podcast that you have mentioned a couple times. Any other things folks should check out? Well, of course, userlist.com. We just migrated yesterday, uh, and <laughs> that's, uh, that's a great resource. Uh, you can find all kinds of materials if you're interested in lifecycle email. And we've grabbed the Twitter handle, too. We are now user at userlist. That's, that's just pure luck. We didn't even buy it. <laughs> that's great. Cool. Well, thanks again, Jane. Thank you so much, Rob. Thanks again to Jane for coming on the show. If you have a question you'd like to hear answered on the show, Leave me a voicemail at 888-801-9690 or email questions at startupsoftherestofus.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from our Out of Control used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us by searching for startups and visit startupsoftherestofus.com for a full transcript of each episode. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.